From their original roots in the radical design of Olympic class biathlon racing rifles to their current projects, Eberly Stock has shown the world how much performance should be expected of outdoor gear. They've always been a pioneer and a leader, not a follower. At Eberly Stock, you'll find original concepts and a better way of doing things. For the hunter, the tactical operator, the shooting sport, or the hardcore adventure outdoorsman, they invite you to explore their current designs. You'll find something that you can really use, use it hard and use it well. And they'll be excited to show you what's around the next corner. You know, on this Veterans Day 2022, I just wanted to say a big thanks to Eberly Stock for being an advocate for the Veterans Project. And most of all, I want to thank Lucas O'Hara, who's a friend of mine. His story, I know, is touching many lives over on the Instagram right now. Um, and at the blog on the website. If you've been privileged enough to read some of those quotes, you'll start to realize the man that Lucas O'Hara is. His honest vulnerability is so powerful, so tangible. I think when you hear his words through the podcast, you'll be even that much more impacted. And that's something that I'm extremely proud of. So stay tuned and make sure that you pay attention to every single word that comes out of this man's mouth because it really is a privilege for him to let you into his life like this. And I want to say thank you personally to Lucas. Without further ado, here it is. Vulnerable. If there was one way to describe Lucas O'Hara, it would be just that. The 6'6 towering behemoth might look imposing, but the man creates with the finest touch at an ancient artistry at his forge in Salt Lake City. Blades that disappear off the market as soon as they hit his website. Maybe it was his time as a sniper in the United States Army, or maybe it was his time in the Continental Color Guard, or possibly a bit of both. His unique touch has become his staple, a beautiful mixture of strength and serenity through the median of metal and wood. As impressive as he is as an artist, the human being is so much more than that. No matter who you are around Lucas, you'll find yourself a subject of his vulnerable affection, and that's something to be admired nowadays. The fact of the matter is, Black Rifle Coffee Company doesn't accept any slouches into their business model, so when a company is adopted as a cohort of theirs, you know there's something special about that group. O'Hara's ability to sift through a seemingly inundated market and create his own distinctive stamp has allowed him to amass a cult following. He is a true student of the craft, ascribing his own eminence at the forge to other artists who've been in the game much longer. Lucas's humility is refreshing, and his ability to lift others up in the same market makes him a wonderful advocate for personal growth through art. Still, his coronation as a part of the master class of bladesmiths wasn't wrought on an easily tread path. He's passed through the fires of life himself, facing trials and tribulations on all sides. But as usual, I've said plenty. Let's let Lucas take it from here. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. 
This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. With me here, Lucas O'Hara. Ah, oh, dude, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. It's a I, I was so I started so serious. I was like, yeah, welcome to the Veterans Project, <laughs> and he's here. Okay, yay! yay. <laughs> <laughs> now I can be myself. <laughs> I got nervous. <laughs> No, it's an absolute pleasure yeah. to have you guys in the shop. Man, this is so rad, dude. Like, <clears throat> So when I first started following you, I was watching a lot of your stuff out in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd seen uh, the stippling, right? That's yep. what you call it, on your blades. And I was drawn to your intense work ethic of you always being in the shop. You always working so hard. But then your happiness and positivity <laughs> in everything you did was like so enlivening for me because yeah. everything that I do within my work, I want to do with a great measure of positivity. And it's not just to do it that way and be like, you know, a non-authentic, right? Exactly. Like where you're going, hey, I'm always happy. It's like, no, The fake positivity. Yeah. So within this work, that's always my goal is to always present, you know, the best image of the project because that's what I want people to see and experience that day. Sure. So seeing your stuff, I was like, gosh, this guy, he's like so full of life. He's a former army sniper. He's killing it in his work. And I just love seeing it. And then I saw that you had the BRCC logo attached to mm-hmm. it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. He found his own niche there. Uh, can you go into a little bit about how that came to be and why you decided to make that decision? Normally, we go all the way back through your life. But I kind of wanted to talk through like that. How did that the come about? The Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So well, well, I mean, specifically with BRCC. With Black how, Rifle? Yeah, yeah. What is it? So... So do you want to know the story of how I built a relationship with these guys or more or less when the blacksmithing, that relationship started? How far back do you want Let's to Let's just go? go back to your childhood. Oh. <laughs> we, how much time do we have and how long is this podcast? 26 hours. <laughs> Seriously. It's a four-parter. <laughs> exactly. Part four. We're going to bring your, your counselor in at hour 10. <laughs> no, so the relationship with Black Rifle, um, I knew of everybody, uh, especially Actually, Matt. <clears throat> Matt was the first person that I started following because I was in battalion for a very short amount of time. And when Matt started doing videos, it spread very quickly through the military. Like, there's this dude making fun of everybody. It's freaking hilarious. And like, especially like his rap battles and all that. So started following Matt and I was like, oh my God, this is hilarious because nobody was doing anything. Nobody was making fun of us at the time. Yeah. And it's something that we do all the time. And it was really cool to see someone highlight that, like the veteran humor and how we really are. So started following Matt. And then at the end of one of his videos, there was this little bitty short guy who's like, hi, I make coffee. I'm going to sell coffee. And they did the very first intro to Black Rifle Coffee. And I saw that and I was like, oh, holy shit, this is so rad. I also love coffee. So I think it was the second batch they ever roasted out of their garage. I bought part, like I bought one of the bags from that. And I was like, oh my God, these dudes are so sick. Then they started a podcast called Drinking Bros. Mm Well, when Drinking Bros started, it was Evan, Matt, and Rocco. I don't even think Ross was on for the first ones. I can't remember. But they started this community called Drinking Bros, and it was about supporting each other, where at the time, there wasn't much of that. There wasn't a lot of veterans building a community where we could all come together, and they had your back. 
So Drinking Bro started and I was blown away by it and getting out of the military, I was just getting out when that started. So plugging into that community via social media was super easy because mm. it was like, you felt like you were back in the military, mm. being able to laugh, joke, the things they talked about. It was like just eavesdropping on a conversation between friends. Fast forward, I got in a really rough spot with somebody I bodyguarded for at the time. Uh, I lost a lot of money and um, was at a really, really, really dark place in my life. Didn't know where to turn to, felt like I was drowning. Everything happened all at once. And I shot all three of them, four of them, a message on Facebook and was like, hi, my name's Luke O'Hara. You don't know who I am. I don't even know why I'm sending this, but I'm in a really bad place. And I just kind of, I, I literally, I didn't know why I was messaging them. I just felt like I needed to. And within, oh God, it was like 15 minutes. Jared replied back and was like, what's your phone number? And shot him my phone number. He called me right away and he's like, where are you located? And I was like, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And he goes, okay, hold on. And hung up. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, First off, Jared Taylor just called me. I was like, this is wild. Like these guys I know are super busy. They have a brand new coffee company, Art 15, their liquor, all this stuff. And he made time instantly. Right. It's like, this, these guys kind of practice what they preach. And then he called me right back and he goes, hey, I've got a job appointment for you or an interview at our t-shirt facility that's right down the road from you, Terminus. That's where we do all our t-shirts for Art 15. Go do an interview and we got you a job. Doesn't pay a lot, but it's like 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, nice. went in, got the job. <clears throat> and then luckily a few weeks later, I got picked up contracting. So I didn't work there very long. But the fact that they practiced what they preached meant more to me than I think they'll ever know. Mm. The fact that they took their time, not even so much to say it was so awesome. They gave me that job and hooked that interview up, but just letting me know I wasn't alone Yeah, because I felt pretty alone at that time. Like yeah. I had friends, but nobody really understood me or what I had just come out of. Mm. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Where, how, what brought you to that point? And you know, you, you obviously, you know, your your childhood was very different. Yeah. Um, in the way that you were raised, and by different, I guess everybody's childhood is different, right? For sure. But the things that you went through that brought you to the place that you were. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, how yeah, you um, I'm one of six children. I was raised incredibly religious. I was homeschooled my entire life. Um, faith was a very powerful part of my family, and I still have a strong amount of faith, but it was used in a scary way. Um, everything I did, I was going to burn in hell. I couldn't listen to any music that, you know, had more than a piano or organ in it <clears throat> to the point of, the first, the first thing I ever stole was a DC Talk, which is like a Christian, like kind of rock rap yeah, group. Yeah. I know. So, <laughs> it was a CD Fellow called... Fellow homeschool weirdo yeah. here. <laughs> it was called uh, Jesus Freak. Like, yeah. literally, that's the name of the album. Yeah. But I had to hide that because it rapped and had heavier music in it, even though it was still Christian. Mm. So I was raised very confused. Um, my mom has some uh, mental issues and... One day, one thing would be okay, like, hey, here's all your Star Wars toy toys. And then the next day, they're in the garbage disposal getting shredded because I'm going to burn in hell for them. Mm. And then she rebuys them for me again in six months because 
it's not that serious. Mm. <clears throat> so it was really hard knowing what was right and what was wrong, especially when it came to like women, cussing, anything like that. It was all bad. Yeah. So in 2001, my father was killed by a drunk driver. Oh, wow. Um, five minutes from my house. And uh, he was an amazing father. Uh, um, he didn't watch sports. He didn't do anything. And when the guys at work would ask him, like, why don't you watch the game? Why don't you? He always said we were his sport. Mm. So we were in the outdoors a lot. We camped all the time. And he was a construction worker. Like, we lived poor. Yeah. Not poor in the sense of we never had food on the table, but I didn't have my own bedroom until I picked up rank in the military. Wow. So shared a room with all my brothers. My three sisters had a room, trundle beds, bunk beds. Like my dad literally built my brother's loft in our room. So very close quarters, very old school, and we worked for everything we ever had. All I ever had was a hand-me-down. If I wanted it myself, I had to work for it, mm. which part of that I love how I was raised because it taught me to appreciate things a lot more and being a father now I have a hard time like spoiling my children because already they have way more than I ever had so there's trying to find that fine balance of the two but for me it was a it was an interesting way to grow up especially mentally wasn't very well socialized and all I ever wanted to do was to go to public school yeah because I needed that structure and especially once my father passed away my mom struggled a lot and she kind of gave up on homeschooling, but we still were at home. So at about seventh grade, I kind of stopped learning because she would give me my schoolwork for the day and the answer books were right next to it. Mm -hmm. So I would do all my school for the week on Monday and then, you know, I didn't do anything else the rest of the week except fuck off, essentially. Did you, did you think a lot of that? trouble and trauma started when your when your father died i mean there had to be a shift in the for home, sure my dad to, oh 100 yeah. percent. my dad was the one that really kept my mom together and there's there's a lot that was kept from me um and my siblings when we were young that now being an adult i can look back and be like okay it wasn't all roses like i <laughs> thought it was it never is and it's yeah. hard for me on that stint too because i never got that adult relationship with my father so i have all these amazing memories of like a perfect father but being older, I wonder like how much of that was hidden from us because one thing I'll give my parents, they never fought in front of us. We were spanked growing up, but it was never out of anger. Like they, right. I never, my mom slapped me one time when I was 16. <laughs> and then the year my dad passed away, we were in the living room and I said something to one of my siblings and he like stepped towards me and I kind of lifted my hands up like in a fist. Yeah. And my dad was a 6'6 construction worker and launched me across the living room floor <laughs> and very quickly reminded me that I was a skinny, scrawny little child. Yeah, but my dad are, did that to me too. Those <laughs> are the only two times that that ever happened. So there, were, I didn't have a bad childhood, but it was just different. Yeah, yeah. And they never spanked us out of anger i would be sent in my room for nine hours because it would take that long for them to calm down yeah but there are parts of it they did really well but once he passed away my mom just kind of lost herself yeah. and gave up especially on me and i just didn't have any of that structure that i needed like yeah. i need structure yeah so well, go ahead no, I was just going to say, you know, that part of your life, I mean, that's so instrumental, especially mm -hmm. going forward into your future as an adult. I mean, you know, you're 13 years old, right? When you lost your dad. At a, mold, a time where you needed to be molded. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're experiencing that at that time. 
what what was that like going forward and kind of what brought you into the army and the decision to do that? So a lot of fighting with my mom. The last, uh, probably junior-ish year, all I wanted to do was finish out in high school. And we had a lot of fights about that where I was like, I knew I wasn't getting education. All my friends were in public school. And I really wanted to have that. And uh, luckily, we were members of a really awesome church. So I still got the mentorship because I got really involved with mission trips. Wasn't so much big into going to the Sunday morning service. I was more of wanting to do the outreach side of things. Mm. So I flooded my life with traveling and mission trips because I at least felt like I was doing something positive. Yeah. And I've always wanted to help people. I've been that way my entire life and I never had a platform or way of doing that. So I started looking at becoming a sheriff or a detention officer when I was 17 years old, found out I could start a program at 17, then I could get hired at 18. So that was the goal I was going to get into law enforcement. But then I found out I couldn't carry a gun or do any real work till I was 21. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, that sucks. I don't want to just work in like a jail and like open a door. So then I went to a recruiter at 17 and was like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to join the army. Yeah. So my mom signed the paperwork, got me signed up. And then a week before I shipped, I got mono and it almost killed me. Oh, geez. So I had a really bad case of mono that put me down for about six months. And then right after my 18th birthday is when... I kind of beat it and then went into the army finally. Mm. And I went in the army at six, six and like six, six and a half and about 145 pounds. Jeez. You're um, a rail. Yeah. Oh no. Like beyond rail. Yeah. And, uh, went into the army and I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do now. And it was more or less of like, I wasn't getting anything at home. I was fed up of being told that, you know, I was going to burn in hell for literally everything I did. And I wanted to find myself and I knew I wasn't going to do that at home. So I joined the army and that's when that part of my life started. Do you think being that outside of what you had experienced growing up helped you? Because obviously that that's another end of the extreme for sure. You get to to basic training. It's like, whoa, everything the world has to offer that's bad is here too. Yep. So what was that experience like for you going through basic training and all that and what, you know, leading up into your unit? It was really hard um, just because I was so sheltered and I knew I wasn't like everybody else. Um, I tried really hard to fit in and that backfired 90% of the time because now where I'm at in life, I can see when someone's trying really hard a mile away. And I knew everybody did that with me. And basic was hard because I was on a weight gaining program. So I had to gain 20 pounds before I was allowed to graduate because I was so underweight for my height. My whole family's bean poles. So I'll never forget my recruiter telling me, you know, hey, lay low. I know you're really tall, but if you can get through and no one knows your name, you did a great job. Within the first week, everybody knew who I was because I was front loaded on chow. I ate donuts, Everything you're not supposed to eat in basic was getting force-fed to me. Fried chicken, cheeseburgers, ice cream, the whole nine yards. So I would go in early, eat, while everyone else is getting screamed at and fucked with. And then I would join the formation after the last person ate. So I had 15, 20 minutes to eat. Then we would all get smoked after. Mm. And I was throwing up all my food, which goes completely against what they were trying to do. So then I didn't get smoked for about an hour, hour and a half after. So now I'm sitting in a little lawn chair that I had to carry with me while everybody else is getting smoked. Oh, they loved you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't like too much fun, but I was a really good runner and I was a really good ruck marcher. So that helped a little bit, um, especially on the running end and the rucking because 
I wasn't the best at a lot of things in the military, but I was good as fuck at rucking. Yeah. Like I could ruck all day long. That's good. So that kind of helped me a little bit, but it was really rough and I got picked on a lot. Now looking back, I'm glad because it made me who I am. And now like, I don't really care. Like, <laughs> I, and a lot of people say, I don't give a shit, but like they everyone really does. Yeah. Everyone does. And I'm blessed to where it doesn't affect me as much as a lot of people just because of like, I got it a lot growing up and it made me pretty thick, which is what saved me when I got to my unit. Cause I'd already got it so much in basic. Yeah. Where, where did you go from there? So from there I had a rip contract. So from there, airborne, airborne rip. And then I had some issues there. I got RFS pretty fast. Um, long story short, I didn't snitch on some people that mm -hmm. got in trouble and they pushed me out pretty fast. Yeah. And, uh, Looking back now, um, I would have done things a little different, but then again, it wouldn't have got me to where I am. Yeah. I know that's such a cliche, but it's such a fact. So right after there, I got lucky. One of the RIs was a really awesome dude, and uh, he took a liking to me. He was another tall guy, and he's like, hey, you got orders to Fort, Pol Fort Polk? And he's like, that place sucks. Because you're so tall, you should check out D.C. Yeah. And he was like, I can get you orders to D.C., and then you can try again. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, again, like, I didn't even really know what range battalion was at the time. I just knew I wanted to be a sniper. Like, yeah. that's all I've ever wanted to do. I love shooting, and that's just, I've looked up to Randy Shugart and Gary Gordon since I was a kid. So that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I got sent to D.C., and then I did a little over two years in Washington, D.C. with the Presidential Honor Guard, where first year I was in a presidential marching platoon, did 526 funerals in Arlington National Cemetery. Wow. My first year, about 13 months. And then I tried out for CCG, which is the Continental Color Guard, failed my first set of tryouts, tried out again, and then the rest of my time was in uh, the Continental Color Guard. Wow. And that was my DC stint. And then after that... Was went that to, pretty uh, cool? Did you, did you enjoy doing that? That's a lot of attention to detail, man, which probably led to a uh, good career as a sniper because there's a lot There's a lot of attention to detail. I have a lot of mixed emotions about it. I saw a lot of guys go to DC to try to hide. Yeah. Um, but then I saw a lot of guys take a lot of pride. I'll never forget my first active duty funeral in Section 66 in Arlington. Um, that's when it really hit what we're doing. Yeah. It's the last time that family, for the most part, is going to have anything to do with the military. Yeah. And I got put on in, uh, when I was in basic, I did one of those like little funerals where they make privates go do a funeral. And it just, I felt dirty doing it because they literally taught us an hour before. And it's just this little bitty cemetery in, in uh, Fort Benning. You run out, do a 21-gun salute, which sounded horrible. We didn't know how to fold a flag. I felt dirty doing that. And then when I got to D.C., I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. This is this how it's is supposed how to it's be done. Exactly, yeah. especially for active duty funerals. Mm. Because there's a long wait list for a lot of the funerals. But a lot of them, the active duty ones, they go straight in. So half your funerals you're doing aren't active. They're gentlemen who've passed away over time and they're finally getting buried. But then a lot of the other ones are the guys who pass away because every soldier is allowed to get buried at Arlington. Mm. So that first active funeral was a lot. And then once I did that, it changed my whole mentality on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so 
I took a lot of pride in it. It was a really, really cool unit, and I got to do a lot of cool things, especially when I made it to CCG. Yeah. Like, I got to go to the 65th anniversary of Normandy, um, got to do, you know, all the, the uh, Forge funeral, the inauguration, um, every home game for the Ravens, Nationals, Capitals, Daytona 500. Wow. Like, anywhere you see the colors, that's my platoon that did them. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Got to do a lot of cool things. And it, I learned a lot of history doing that. And I had a lot more pride going into my next unit because of DC. That's huge. So so what was the decision from there? So you'd wanted to be a sniper. Mm-hmm. What got you into sniper? Um, so after that, when my reenlistment came up, I said, what is the first unit deploying? Like, mm-hmm. I don't care where it is. I have to deploy. Because I got a really bad taste in my mouth because of the old guard. There are a lot of guys there, E6, E7, E8s, that had never deployed. They yeah. were old guard babies, and they just hid. Mm. I did not want to get out of the military being that person. Gotcha. Yeah. So once that happened, I was like, who's deploying first? And they are like, oh, this unit's a mechanized unit, third ID. And I was like, done. Where is it? And they're like, Benning. And I was like, oh, I got to go back to Georgia. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll go there, and then I can go somewhere else after that. Yeah. So re-enlisted for a third ID. Got the third ID and then deployed three weeks later. Wow. Um, and then on that deployment, uh, became really good friends with a lot of the snipers that were in section. Their chews were a few down from us. Started. Where, where'd you go? Uh, that was Iraq. Iraq. So, okay. yeah, I never made it to Afghanistan. I did Iraq three times. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I never made it to the mountains. Even contracting, I tried to jump on those deployments, and I still went to Iraq or <laughs> Africa. So never never got to experience Afghanistan. Yeah. Me neither. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, Iraq, uh, so. I mean, I'm not complaining about it. No, but no. Me neither. It's one of those things that uh, it would have been cool to check the box off, but I have no, no regrets, not even one letter. <laughs> so it's like, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, so went to Iraq. Um and became good friends with a lot of the snipers. And then they pulled me over on that deployment into section. And then when I came back, went straight to school and then went to the schoolhouse. I am a. I How did. does a guy make a decision like that, though? You're six foot eight, right? I don't know. I just, I just <laughs> knew. I don't. Yeah. They're like, hey, you're going to be a good sniper. Uh oh. <laughs> you well, got to be really good at what you do. And it's yeah. the funny thing is, everyone always talks shit, especially about stocks, because stocks is what gets people the most. So I did, I'm what's called a Bravo 8. Uh, instead of a Bravo 4, I went through twice. Mm. So went through sniper school. I failed target detection uh, week two, which broke my heart. Like I was so upset because I messed up one of my grids. So I found all the objects. I was just a grid number off. Failed that. And then the instructors were super amazing. And they were like, well, you can stay and then just walk on to the next class. Because I was stationed on Benning. So I did 10 straight weeks. So that class graduated on a Friday, and then I picked right back up. I think it was, can't remember, I want to say Sunday, but I might be off. But it was like a two-day flip-flop where I just stayed in the schoolhouse in my bunk and then picked back up. So I did all events minus graded events. Okay. So did that. So I did stock lanes. I did nine sets of stock lanes and never got caught once. Wow. Which I love stalking. That was my favorite, like camo, stalking, playing in the woods. That was what I knew I was going to really love and enjoy. Did you have an invisibility cloak? Because you're six foot eight. (laughs) More or less patient, and I understood terrain. Okay. Where a lot of guys rush and try to move really quickly, I don't mind going slow. 
and I'm really good at stacking trees. Ah, so okay. in Benning, uh, there's so many pines. If you understand how to tree stack, like my final shot for the, my test, I was standing three, a little over 300 yards or 300 meters back, and I was completely standing up on a tripod. I didn't even have my ghillie top on. Wow. And I had just had probably an eight-tree tree stack to where when they tried to walk the walker in on me, they lost the walker. Wow. So I was just lucky, and I understood terrain, mm. um, to be honest. And I got a lot of practice because when I got to do stalks the first time, I had already failed. So it took away a lot of that pressure that a lot of other guys have. And I got to practice different techniques. And I was lucky enough, I never got caught. But I got rid of those butterflies. Mm -hmm. And I did it. I The sniper section that I was a part of, we did a big workup leading up to it. And it's the exact same terrain because we're on bending. Mm -hmm. So I was very blessed to have a little bit of like guys coming from Germany or Hawaii. They didn't really know what they were getting into. And I did have a lot more understanding leading into it. Yeah. But yeah, finally graduated after five weeks. Did you enjoy your time as a sniper? Did loved you like it. that? Yeah. Every second. Yeah. Like I, I really enjoyed it. I loved the shooting. I loved the math. I loved the stalking. S things that I have to focus on really hard, I do really well with because it quiets everything else. That's literally how I got into blacksmithing. My first time doing this, everything else got quiet. Mm. My head is very jumbled and there's a lot going on in it and when I find something that makes it go quiet I pay super close attention mm -hmm. and shooting was that way archery is that way for me now um I started shooting archery three and a half weeks ago and a lot of people were like you're so good at this like I'm very blessed to have amazing instructors like we've got the Isaacs here we have a full bow shop like I have a lot of yeah, you're at like I'm, one of the premier stations I'm for that. Very, kind of I'm very blessed in that. But for me, again, back to being a sniper, it's all about steps. Yeah. And I watched John Dudley's videos on YouTube of how to be an archer, and I followed them to a T. Mm -hmm. And I have these guys to yell at me when my elbow's off or my hand placement's off. But I do well at it because I'm only focused on one thing. Same with blacksmithing, same with driving. Those are the only three things in my life right now that I love doing because I'm only focused on one thing. Yeah. And anything like that, I do pretty well at. So so how long were you a sniper for? How much longer did your contract uh, go? So let's see. So roughly four years, four years. after that. Yeah. Um, you did a couple more deployments mm -hmm. to Iraq. And, yep. Yeah. And then after that, got out. And then I finished out. So I did almost, let's see, six and a half years, I want to say, active. Okay. Or no, almost seven years active and then i went to a lurse unit in the national guard in georgia after okay um wanted to give that a try because i wasn't quite ready to get out but i also didn't like where the army was going i don't enjoy garrison very much and me neither <laughs> yeah it, it wasn't i did that in dc and it was turning into that like all right guys we have nothing to do, but we're still going to stay here for another four hours. And lack of common sense, I don't do well with. Right. Which is why I work by myself. Like, I, and why I had so many jobs when I got out. Yeah. Because if it doesn't make sense, I don't want to do it. Right. And a lot of the military doesn't make sense. A lot of jobs don't make sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> got out, did the Lurse thing, and I was blessed with a super high-speed unit. The guys there, I mean, I 
think every dude in my platoon was tabbed or scrolled. Wow. And I was blown away. Got more jumps in that unit than I did my entire army career. I think I did 32 jumps in that year. Got to go to Africa, jumped into Africa. Like, wow. got to do some really cool shit. But again, I was struggling with balancing the civilian life and the military. I'm an all-in person to a fault. Yeah. I, I felt like I wasn't doing a good job balancing the two. So either I stay active duty or I get out. And I chose to get out. So you get out and your army career is over. Yep. And obviously there's that period of reintegration, right? That we all talk about. Transition is difficult for everyone in some way. It was especially difficult for you, right? Yeah. And what was that like? It was difficult. That's one of the reasons I did the guard because I thought it would help a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it did, uh, but I started working in bars doing security at that point and like literally 50 bucks a night to get in four or five fights. Like it sucked, but I was very blessed to move up in that community very, very quickly. And I got out of the shitty bars pretty fast. And then I got into bodyguarding, mm. um, went and tried out for a company called Gavin to Becker and associates made it through that program and then found out that I had to move to California and I had zero interest in living in California because <laughs> they have a field office in Atlanta that I was hoping to get, and I didn't get that. Uh, so got the training for them, which I super appreciate, but I knew that wasn't the route I wanted to go, and I also didn't like having not getting to pick who I worked for. Hmm. Um, I wanted to work for people that would listen and take what I said very seriously because it's not about – taking bullets for somebody or getting in firefights or doing anything crazy like a lot of rapper security does. It's getting your client out of there before there's ever even an issue. Right. Um, and if your client doesn't listen to you, then you're going to get shot up, especially working in Atlanta and working for a lot of the clients I had, they had to listen yeah. because it was going to get ugly really quick in a matter of minutes. And judging by what I had heard about the Hollywood Beverly Hills crowd, they don't listen all that well. <laughs> no. So yeah. I was very lucky to have a close friend who was a very prominent bodyguard in Atlanta, and he kind of took me under his wing. Okay. And uh, through him, got to get some really awesome clients. And I tried out for just about every security company there was and quit within a month of every single one. So I think my first year and a half, I had close to 32 jobs. Wow. Because I, I just hated everyone I worked with. They either drank on the job, they didn't pay attention. You know, our supervisor would say, hey, we need this, this, and this. And they didn't do any of those things. And I was getting in trouble because of other people's mistakes. Mm. And I just couldn't handle that. And I was super frustrated because I'm also not a snitch. Yeah. So I didn't want to be like, oh, well, it wasn't me. I did exactly what you said. This person did something completely different. But now I'm getting railed and my reputation is going downhill because of this person. Mm. Um, so, yeah, got into freelance and started bodyguarding after that, which led me to getting in trouble. So now we're back to... Drinking bros. Uh, I had a client who, fast version, essentially did the exact same thing Bernie Madoff did. And uh, was with him for close to six and a half months as his literal personal bodyguard. About five days a week with him. Traveled everywhere, whole nine yards. Um, and I got picked up by him because he carried a lot of cash. He was a big partier. He was an older gentleman. But, I mean, to put it in perspective, we went to Vegas for, I think, four days and did $2.5 million spent in those four days. So he blew money pretty big, private jets, like whole nine yards. 
I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, but in Atlanta, that's something people are like, well, wasn't that a red flag? It's yeah. not because Atlanta is a big flex city. Yeah. So it's all about how much money you throw. Like people spending $40,000 a night in a club is not uncommon. Yeah, it's the Dallas or, of the East. Dallas, it happens too. Exactly. There, yeah. And uh, so you get used to it. And I didn't think too much of it. And then I watched the guy work all day long. So I was like, oh, he's on the stock market. I knew he, you know, was from Wall Street and all this. And then when we were in Nashville, Tennessee, um, we got surrounded by 45 federal and local PD, uh, full call out, vehicle got surrounded. Uh, he got black bagged. I need a change of pants at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty terrifying. Um, I didn't see it coming a mile away. I had zero idea whatsoever. But found out he did the exact same thing Bernie Madoff did. And two weeks before we got arrested, um, I gave him close to $75,000 of my own money to invest. Um, Which, let's say $50,000, you put that into the hedge fund, and then you get a return of $2,500 on the first of every month for that money. I took a loan out for that. So my idea was I get that pay off that loan within two years i'm making a profit of twenty five hundred dollars do another one so within five years i'm making a little over five grand a month for not working wow um did a lot of good math yeah did a lot of research i watched plenty of people do it with way more money than that and i had my hands on the money handed it over to him and i'll never forget he put his hands on top of mine he said i'm so proud of you And I said, this is everything I have. I've never taken a risk like this in my life because I'm a very, I don't even gamble. Like if it's not guaranteed, I don't really fuck with it. And he put his hands on top of mine. He said, I love you like a son. And I'm so proud of you because I was looking to create my own security company. Mm. And then two weeks later, we're held at gunpoint by the FBI in Nashville, Tennessee. Found out everything was a lie. His name, all of it. Wow. Um, Which hurt a lot. I had never dealt with a true sociopath before. I'm pretty good at reading people. And I was blindsided like nobody's business because he called me his son. Yeah. And, uh, like even his age, all of it was a lie. Wow. So I am now stuck with losing that money. We had an up armored suburban, which was in my name, $120,000 vehicle, which was in my name and he made the payments on. So now I'm stuck with that. All this debt, monthly payments on this loan that I didn't have. I didn't have that money. Oh my God. And now I don't have a client anymore. I was making $750 a day with him. Jeez. And I, I'm good with my money. So I had paid off my car, paid off all my debt. I was debt free and I had a good bit in savings. Mm. So that's what floated me as I tried to figure out how I was going to keep up because I was debt free. And then now all of a sudden I'm 150 plus thousand or almost $200,000 in debt, Jeez. including the vehicle. So vehicle gets repoed. I'm burying myself. I was working three jobs, like three jobs a day, averaging two and a half to three hours of sleep trying to keep up. And I just couldn't do it. So got into contracting. And then that's when I wrote the letter to JT and all those guys. They got me the job. And then I left a contract right after that. Mm. And then tried, did the contracting, really loved that as well. It was great being back overseas but it was taking a toll on my relationship and um, I wasn't gonna lose that for that. And we wanted children and everything, so gave up contracting and then we got pregnant. And I was like, I don't wanna do security anymore. Yeah. And then that's when I was like, 
all right, security is not working out. I have two or three really good clients, which I'm going to keep, but I'm going to get out of the clubs. I'm going to get out of all this. I'm going to use my GI Bill, and I'm going to go into school for welding. Mm. So went into school for welding, and during that time, I found out about this school called Goat and Hammer in Atlanta, and they teach blacksmithing. Awesome. And they had this little railroad spike class for 120 bucks, and I was like, I'll try that. I love doing new stuff. Went and took that class and became obsessed. Wow. And that was the start of my blacksmithing. What What do you think? It, what do you think about it was so uh, enrapturing? Like, what did you want to be? Why Why was it that that drew your attention? I can't really explain it. It was that focus. It was that when I was behind the anvil, everything went away. It was taking something from nothing, as cliche as that sounds, and turning it into something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of that that spoke to me and the heat, the danger, the high pace, like I do not do well when things are calm. I thrive in chaos. And I know a lot of people in our community say that, but when you're used to a certain tempo and a certain speed, when things are quiet, it's not good. And for me, it's a very, I get really anxious and I used to have really bad panic attacks because I, I, I need something going on to the point of where I would create chaos, where if things are going good with the wife, if everything's good, okay, I'm going to have a conversation that I shouldn't have in my DMs with someone because mm. I need that. I got to hide this. I got to do this. I got to, what, what can I do to create something in my life that makes me feel alive? Mm. And I was doing it in all the wrong ways. Wow. And blacksmithing was the first thing for me that gave me that chaos, but it had a purpose. And that was really the change in my mentality and me for the first time ever finding who I am as a person and literally be the beginning of me growing up. Did, did you think that, uh, you know, did you think that when you first found that, you know, in blacksmithing and what you were doing and, and the detail of that, did that fit well into what you were doing as a sniper? I mean, was it that attention to detail that brought you, you know, into the detail of this? Because this is a very detailed work. A hundred percent in the sense of cleaning your rifle the exact same way every time, checking your gear two, three, four times, getting that practice in. You have to do it a lot to make. If you took me out right now and said, we're going to shoot to a thousand, go. I would, I don't know if I'd be able to, I'd have to pull out all my notes, get my dope book, refresh. Cause I haven't done that in a while. And my brain, it doesn't retain things very well. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't talk a lot about my past, especially military stuff. I don't remember a lot of it. And if I have a lot of time to think about it and can look at photos and look at a lot of stuff, I'll might be able to figure it out eventually or remember, but I just don't remember a lot blacksmithing is very much like shooting because when I get set up, I have to prep my material. My hammer sits a certain way on my anvil. Like the way my mentor Mark taught me is exactly what I do. So he gave me your tongs go here, hammer goes here. Don't do this. This is exactly how you do it. And those are those steps that I get to work through in my head every single time. Yeah. So yeah, to your point, like, It is very similar. Same with archery, like your steps, go through your steps. Here's your list. If you do all these correctly, there's going to be a good product. You know, I noticed so much detail in your work and all that you put, you know, together. And you, you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the stippling and some of that being Mm -hmm. looked down upon in the community and the stuff that you do. How do you develop your own sense of identity and purpose within 
that work and not let the other's ideas of what that should be get into your head too much. I owe all of that to my mentor, Mark Hopper. Um, he is one of the greatest blacksmiths I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and knowing, and not a lot of people know it because his joy in life is teaching. Instead of making all the money he could, making knives, swords, decorative art gates like he is a true blacksmith and bladesmith Mm. so having him as a mentor i think is the only reason i'm where i'm at because he's the one even though he teased me for certain things i did when you talk about stippling you're talking about the pattern on a lot of my knives i do right i won't say how i do it some people know but it's more of an aesthetic thing and in the blacksmith community it's looked down upon as lazy um, oh, you're not hand sanding, you're not doing this. There's a lot of cliches in the community. Some guys are awesome and they don't give a fuck. But a lot of purists and a lot of other people are like, oh, you're just cutting corners or you're just doing that, blah, 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 blah. And I had a few people I look up to greatly kind of shun on that, to include Mark. Like, he gave me shit when I first started doing it. Yeah. But the difference between Mark and all those guys, there was a gentleman at Blade Show about four years ago who said something in it, it – that being straight up hurt my feelings. I was like, I felt like I let him down because of the style I was doing because I I don't want to be disrespectful in the blacksmith community. Like I want to learn the original ways. I want to, after that railroad spike, Mark didn't even let me make a knife for a while. I did tongs. I made my own hammer. I learned the basics of blacksmithing before I actually started making a knife. Cause he said I needed to know how to be a blacksmith before I could be a bladesmith. Mm. And I'll never forget, after that gentleman said that, I stopped doing those texturing marks on my knives, and they stopped selling. Mm -hmm. And Mark was like, why'd you stop doing that? And I was like, well, so-and-so. And And he stopped me, and he goes, is he buying your knives? And I said, well, no, I just didn't want to. He goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, have I bought one of your knives? And I was like, well, no, sir. And he goes, it doesn't matter. He goes, we're not the ones supporting you and buying your knives. If you're doing something people love and you like how it looks, fuck what everybody else says. Mm. And he goes, you're not trying to sell to blacksmiths. Who cares who follows you? He goes, the people that know who you are, they'll follow you. And as long as you're being honest about what you do and you're not pretending to do something or telling people, yeah, this is fully forged or, you know, brute to forge, whatever it is. As long as you're honest about that, who cares what people say? You're successful. You're doing a good job. You're doing everything right. You're being honest about who you are. So keep doing that. And that mentality of him, a lot of the things I do in life are direct, like how I forge, how I sharpen. It's literally a mirror of Mark. Mm. But he never made me do everything exactly what he does. He gave me the room to create my own style, follow my own stuff, and encourage that. When I take a knife to Mark, yeah, it might not be what he expects or what he would do, but he looks at it as this is what I do. And he gives me the critiques based on that. So having somebody with that confidence and having someone to guide me newly into the community, because I've only been blacksmithing for a little over three years. Mm, I've only wow. had my business for two years and th- two years and four months. Wow. So I'm very new and I am still learning. Yeah. But having him to guide me through this community and a lot of the other guys who've taken a liking to me and helped me has been huge. And just finding, I can see one of my knives a mile away and know it's one of mine just because I was lucky enough to kind of come up with my own style, which 
is really hard to do nowadays. Everyone's made it before. Yeah. Every knife has been done, every style. And even in the beginning, I was having a hard time finding mine. And I reached out to other knife makers was like, I really like your knife. Do you mind if I practice and make something like this? And if I posted a photo, I said, inspired by Simple Little Life or whatever it was, gave that credit to that maker and then through that found my own way to make it mine. So once I found my way to like, I had my own style and I stopped caring what everybody thought, that's when I truly became free. What is that about finding your own creative identity that's so enlivening? I mean, that's got to be cool, right? Like It is, especially when you do something that you know not a lot of people have done. Yeah. I recently did that with one of my daggers. Um, <laughs> it's a little dark for some people, but I found it incredibly awesome because, to my knowledge, I've only been able to find three or four knife makers that have not, not done it. But I recently uh, did my first dagger, and the handle of that dagger was a human tibia. Oh, wow. Um, so we found a retired cadaver that was in a teaching college, and uh, one of the gentlemen here at work purchased it. And uh, we repurposed it yet again, and we're making knife handles out of it. That is so, so cool. So something that I love thinking outside of the box and trying when someone says, oh, there's nothing new you can do. It's like, okay, cool. Let's try to figure out how to do that. <laughs> um, and so for me, like having that freedom to do whatever I want to do and being blessed with such an unbelievable following, like I can't put into words how lucky I am to have the clients and the following that I have because I know blacksmiths that have been doing this for 15, 20 years who struggled to sell knives and how much of that was a niche thing? Like, how much of that was finding your niche and, and, and getting the BRCC stamp of approval on your thing? I mean, I know your work's good. I've seen it. It's beautiful. I don't, honestly, and this is, like, what I believe, I don't think... I do understand my work is amazing, and I work really hard on it, especially on my heat treat. I take a lot of pride in the caliber of steel that I put out into the public. But a lot of it is who I am. Yeah. Um, I uncomfortably share a lot of who I am because I've been blessed to meet a lot of people that I looked up to on social media. And when I met them, they sucked. And I swore that I would never be that person who you see on my Instagram is exactly who I am. In real I agree. Life. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, you're, you know, that stepping into that role though, you know, I did see BRCC stamp on your stuff. Where did that come from? So blacksmithing, I'm doing night school for welding and okay. then I'm blacksmithing during the day. So I was very blessed to have a year where I didn't have to work because I was getting paid to go to school because it was with the GI bill. I was in night school and then would do that during the day. So there wasn't a lot of pressure. So I started just having fun and it was a hobby. And then people started buying them and then they continued starting buying them. And then it got in more and more people's hands where Baker Levitt was one of the first people within the Black Rifle community to get one of my knives because he's best friends with one of the owners, Jamie Sheeran, who owns an amazing restaurant slash bar in Atlanta called the Ivy. They're really close. Then one day Jamie came into Tongue and Groove, the nightclub that I was running security at, personal security, uh, private security. And I was like, holy shit, Baker. And went and introduced myself. I was like, hey, I'm a big fan of Black Rifle and everything. And this was almost four years ago, five years ago. I can't remember the exact date, but probably about four years. 
And he was like, oh, holy shit. And I was like, yeah, Jared helped me out, you know, a couple years ago when I really needed help. And Baker was like, oh, my God, that's rad. You make knives? Let me get one. And I was like, oh, my God, I'd love to make you a knife. I didn't even charge him. I was just like, I'd love to make this for you. And then Baker showed people around the company. And then Lacey, who's a photographer for Black Rifle, she hit me up. I made one for her. And it started taking off like wildfire. And then more and more people in the company started asking me for knives. And then one day I got a phone call out of nowhere and it was like, I'm trying to think of the history of when it happened. So then I went on a cruise, a Drinking Bros cruise, and Matt and everyone were on it. Mm -hmm. So met Matt and then Matt ordered four knives for Christmas for him, his dad, and his brothers. So made those. And then after that, I think that's when I popped up on the radar for Evan And my business was doing okay. I had graduated welding school and I was like, well, Grizzly Forge is doing well. I'm going to try to follow this and see where it goes. It didn't go very well off the top. Like (laughs) I was taking a lot of custom orders, which is kind of what you have to do. So I was making a lot of stuff I didn't like. Yeah. And I was not having fun. I was, you know, reaching out to a bunch of people, making knives that I wasn't very good at. I wasn't doing anything I wanted to do. So the business was crashing, wasn't making a lot of money, two months behind on the mortgage, life wasn't good. And right before I had photographed everything in my shop to put up for sale, and my wife was like, just give it a little bit longer. One of our friends literally loaned us 120 bucks to turn our power back on. Oh my God. And I got paid two days later, got the water back on and all that. And then I got a text from Evan saying, hi. And I was like, holy shit, Evan Hafer. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I kind of want to do like a bag opener. Do you have any interest in doing this? I was like, yeah. And he goes, awesome. Uh, Whenever you have some designs, send them over and I'll pick one. I forged out like five designs that hour. And was so like, that series of bag openers that you did, mm-hmm. that was my first and the one thing. that you like, that one that you sent me so gracefully, I was like, yeah. yeah, you can make me one as long as the BRCC guys don't murder me in my sleep. <laughs> yeah, you were the only person that got one yeah. that wasn't Black I love Rifle. that bag opener, too. It's beautiful. So that bag opener came up with that design. That was right after you were turning the power back on. Yep. Jeez. So that first 50 Evan ordered, he was like, I want that one, make 50. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. And I killed myself making those. I had never done anything that big. I could tell. I was trying to forge all of them out, like, from scratch. It was the roughest two and a half weeks ever. So I finished those 50, and that is what caught us up on our mortgage. All of that, Black Rifle was posting them. This was maybe three years ago. I can't. I'm so bad with dates. But rough, like, two years or so ago. And because of that, I started getting orders and I was like, holy shit. And then Evan goes, Hey man, I love those 50. Can you do another 250? And I was like, Oh, okay. And right after I'm telling my wife, I'm never doing these again. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, I'll do it. So (laughs) sped up my process a lot, brought some friends in to help and then made 250 and that we were feeling good. So that gave me enough space to stop doing customs because I canceled a lot of my orders because the people weren't very nice. I wasn't enjoying the work. I was like, I'm just going to do this. So finished those 250 bag openers, dropped them off at the post office, was going to take like three or four days to kind of take a break. And I broke my back. Um, Was helping a buddy move a thousand pound gun safe and it fell on top of me. Um, Fractured my spine in four places and Finally had that momentum of like, okay, the business is, I'm going to do this. 
And then that happens. Uh. Again, now we're stressed out again. A lot of crazy stuff. Like my life is just a lot of, whoa, that's a freak accident. And it just, it always happens to me. Even at this point, I have 10 stitches in my ankle as we're speaking <laughs> because of just something stupid that I don't even understand how I got hurt and it happened. I like what you said earlier, though, about people like telling you you're lucky and then you being like, why did this have to happen to me in the first place? Yeah, that would like, be luck. <laughs> when I, when I dropped the safe, I should be dead. Yeah. But I'm so lucky that it happened the way it did. I should have sliced my Achilles tendon in half. I yeah. missed it by an eighth of an inch. I'm so lucky. But I still have 10 stitches. But you also wish the safe hadn't fallen on you in the first place. <laughs> so that happens, and I get a nice lump of money in my bank account two weeks later, and I'm like, hey, I reach out to Fiona at Black Rifle, and I'm like, hey, I've already got paid for the order. I don't need more. And she's like, oh, Evan wants more for the upcoming future. So he went ahead and paid you. And I text Evan and I'm like, hey, dude, like, uh, what? I'm, you know, I broke my back. And he goes, it's all good. That'll float you. We'll see you when you get better. Yeah. And again, I don't have words for what that meant because that took a lot off my plate. I was going through a really rough time in life, personally and business-wise. Um, my wife now, we were, we were just engaged at the time. We had just separated. Mm. Um, so I moved out of my house like that week. Wow. And now I have a broken back by myself, no one in the home. I couldn't even get off my couch. So that was a lot of soul searching. Um, those three months, and this was at the beginning of 2020, this was two weeks after COVID started. So everyone's freaking out. No one wants to be around anybody. I'm literally like cleaning my cereal bags, like out of the box. So I don't want my daughters to die from COVID. Like no one knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Those early periods were worst, worst time. And for someone who doesn't do well sitting still, it put my brain in a weird place. It could have gone really bad or really good. And I was very blessed that it went really good. 2020 was the greatest year of my life. And it was the biggest year of growth I've ever had. I would agree with you too. For me too. It's yeah. so weird. I almost feel guilty saying that. When I, I saw oh, so many people suffering. You know, it's like I tell people all the time, they're like, how was your 2020, man? What was... I was like, man, honestly, it was phenomenal. Like, it was the best year for the project, like my team and everything. And I almost feel bad saying that because yeah. I saw a lot of people suffering this year, this last year. And I was really selfish leading up to that. Looking back, that's one of the reasons I lost my family and a lot of things that I was like, oh, it's all good. You're just over exaggerating or whatever it is. Like, I wasn't doing well as a man, as a father, as a business owner, as somebody in the community. And being alone sucked. Like, yeah. it sucked. But again... How low did you get? Pretty low. Yeah. Pretty low. And I was on a lot of edibles at the time. Mm. So the doctors gave me, I think I was prescribed close to 40 Percocet, oxycodone, 20 plus muscle relaxers because of COVID, they doubled up all the doses because they didn't want me to have to come back in, get a ride or all that. So I had enough narcotics to send somebody to the moon and definitely enough to get somebody addicted. Yeah. Um, but I had recently started smoking weed maybe seven or eight months prior to that. And because of that, quit drinking. Um, I was drinking a lot every single night. Um, Because of that, I quit drinking, came off all my meds, no more antidepressants, which I didn't even need. But the VA thought I did because I was having a hard time sleeping. And not because of like depression or anything. I just don't sleep well. Mm. And they're like, well, here's Ambien and all this other stuff. And when I started smoking, it took 
all of that away. Wow. I was waking up better. I was happier. I quit drinking, which took away that feeling sick for two days and the weird depression slump you're in after a heavy night of drinking. And then you're drinking again to make it go away. And it was this vicious cycle. And when I broke my back, I didn't touch one of the meds. Wow. And I was walking again. They said I wouldn't walk for six months and I wouldn't be able to work to close to a year. And I was back up and walking. Like I still have to, I to this day still wear a back brace. Um, but I was up and walking and lightly working in three and a half months. Wow. And when I went into the doctor to do my second round of x-rays, he closed his door and he was like, can I ask you a question? Do you smoke? And I was like, Oh no, I quit smoking, you know, years ago. I used to be a big cigarette smoker. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, what have you been doing? And I was like, well, you know, I'm doing close to hundred milligrams of edibles daily smoking and then CBD, like around 1500 milligrams of CBD. Yeah. And he was like, you have zero inflammation. And he wow. goes, we never see a recovery like this unless they're not touching the drugs we gave them. Dude, that's awesome. And it blew my mind. Wow. But because of that, it put me, when I smoke, it makes everything again kind of go away and I can really lose myself in my thoughts. Yeah. And being single, I've been a man whore my entire life. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that I've never, drugs, alcohol, like it's never really taken a huge hold of me, but women, women always have. Yeah. And being in a committed relationship is not the best thing on earth. Probably and not great. <laughs> normally when I go through a breakup, I go full man whore. Yeah. And I didn't this time. Wow. And I didn't because, not because I wanted to, like I just didn't want to. And instead of ignoring that and burying that feeling, I was at a place mentally where I was like, okay, this is new. Let's focus on this. Hmm. And instead of finding someone to take that pain away, I lived in that pain for about four or five months wow. and suffered. And I still made mistakes, a lot of them, trying to figure that out, but I didn't make the same mistakes I always make. And I focused on work, I focused on myself, I started keeping a journal, I changed the friends I hung out with, I stopped drinking because of the weed, like I wasn't drinking and partying anymore, wasn't doing the club every night, and I focused on being a father. Mm. And through that, I got my business, I got my family back, I'm now married to the love of my life, you know, the person I've been with for seven plus years that we've had some incredible rocky patches, but we fought through them. Yeah. And we got to where we are today. And it was all because of that stupid back. And because of Black Rifle promoting my stuff and having my back through all of that, when I started working again, I no longer took custom orders. I made what I love, which then pushed my work even further because I cared about it. Yeah. It wasn't just, hey, man, I want you to make this crazy knife with this. and But it's like, okay, that's stupid, but I need money. Yeah. Now I make exactly what I love and they're getting better every single time because I love it. Yeah. And people for some strange reason love it too. And since then when I do a drop, they're normally sold out in about 60 seconds. Yeah. And it's hum I have a panic attack every single time I do a <laughs> knife drop because I believe this is the one that's not going to sell yeah. and I'm screwed again. <laughs> but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and people keep becoming more and more supportive. 
And I still, to this day, don't understand why. That's good. Well, I, I understand why when I see your blades. Your work is incredible. It. It's beautiful. But uh, having these guys next door can't hurt, right? <laughs> you yeah, know? And, like, that, and that even goes back to it. Evan, they win a lot. They win a lot. Yeah, they yeah. Did, but they, they win a lot because they've built a community yep. that supports them. And through seeing that, that's what I wanted to do. I, even in the knife-making community, a lot of people are like, fuck you, I'm going to get mine. Like, I'm going to make my knives, I'm going to do this, and with half Face Blades, with Montana Knife Company, with all these knife makers that are in our community, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you see it, it's nothing but support. Yeah. If I don't have a knife drop, hey, guess what? Josh Smith's got a knife drop on Friday. Go support him. Guess what? If you spend the money you were going to spend on me on him, when he has a knife drop and they sell out instantly, he's going to send you to mine. And that community that we've been building is directly off of watching what Black Rifle has done. That's awesome. And Evan tried to move us down to Texas right before Sydney and I separated. And when that happened, it broke my heart because he made the offer to move us to Texas two and a half, maybe three years ago. And I had to tell him, hey, I just separated with my fiance. My daughters are staying in Georgia. I'm not leaving them. Yeah. And he didn't skip a beat. He goes, okay, cool. That's fine. We can still work with you in Georgia. Still make knives. Yeah. It's not a problem. Like, be with your family. Yeah. And then when we got back together, <laughs> within like a month, he's like, hey, you want to move to Salt Lake? Yeah. And I was like, what? Sydney's never going to want to move. And then brought her out here, and she saw this community and she saw like the life we could give our children, especially in the outdoor space. Yeah. And she fell in love with it. And then a month ago, we packed our family up, did a cross country move to Salt Lake City, Utah. And Evan and the guys here, Evan, Matt, Jared, like they gave me this unbelievable, beautiful shop, an amazing opportunity. It's really cool. And we're going to start a veterans program where we're going to bring vets out and they're going to get to spend X amount of time with me making knives and hopefully find as much therapy as I've found in this line of work. And whether they take it and do something or they just create a hobby, there's a lot in blacksmithing that's so therapeutic and I want to help as many guys find that as I can. Yeah, that's awesome, man. What's the what's the dark side of this work? You uh I've noticed I, I had noticed a post on a story the other day. I seen a lot of like I see you, you see some copycatting for sure. And the dark side is yeah. Forge and Fire made blacksmithing super, super, super popular, which is amazing. Love seeing anytime anyone does anything blue collar, I get excited. Yeah. Like fuck a college education, become a welder, become a pipe fitter, AC, HVAC, like whatever you can. There's so much money in working with your hands. Oh, yeah. And people want that quick paycheck without any work. Right. So anytime I can promote it, I'm all about it. But with a massive influx, there is a lack of inspiration. There are a lot of people trying to make money really fast. I never wanted to do this as a business. And I will swear that on everything. Like... It was fun for me, and I got put in this position. I don't want to be famous. I don't want people to wait in lines to know who I am. I feel like that takes away so much sincerity where right now I could go somewhere. Maybe one person knows who I am. I can have a 30-minute conversation with that person and get to know them. Unlike other people I've seen that are super famous and social media famous and they can't have more than a three-second conversation with someone. Yeah. And I don't want that. I just want to be normal and be able to help and be not even inspirational, just show people that there's a much better way in life to do what you love and potentially still make money at it or just find that thing. Yeah. Find what this does for me. Find that in your life. Find mm-hmm. a purpose. 
And a lot of guys are getting into this and they want to make a lot of money really fast. So what do they do? <laughs> they find somebody who is successful. What you're talking about is my good buddy, Tori at Gunstone Creations. He does an epoxy. He's the one that did the Black Rifle collaboration with me and okay. he learned how to stabilize coffee beans. It's the knife that's up on my shop, up on the wall. Which is really rad. But he stabilized coffee beans and ammo and put it in a handle on a collaboration piece we did and he's one of the only ones that does that lately there have been some makers that are copying his work to a fucking t like the colors the name everything Jeez. selling it as their own and then when they get called out they're like i have no idea what you're talking about and it's like and become combative exactly and for me i ignore those people i'm just like i've had plenty of people knock off my work try to do my stippling try to do certain things all you have to do is tag them All you have to do is say, inspired by, give that maker his credit. Like, you didn't come up with this. You were literally copying what they did to a T. And that's stealing. Like, straight up, you're making money off someone else's design. You don't need, like, it's okay. Everybody's work looks like somebody's work. Like I said, not a lot of... Not a lot of originality left in the knife community. Yeah. So if you do take somebody, just give them a little credit. Even if my blades look like somebody, I give them that credit. Yeah. Especially in my early days before I figured out my own way. And I purposefully don't follow a shit ton of knife makers because I don't want to see something that I love and then see my work start mimicking it. Yeah, I try to kind of stay away from that and being around a ton or like Googling knives or looking at designs because... I just kind of want it to happen in my head. Bro, I'm the same way. People used to ask me all the time, like, who's your major photographic inspiration? And I was like, nobody. I was and like, there's a lot I don't want to know. And there's a lot in that world, too. Yeah. One of my good buddies, Josh, his work's kind of getting... His editing style is getting jacked by somebody else, and it's not out of being mean or anything. It's just something that happens. Yeah. And We see the project get copied from time to time. I mean, we've had that within the past... Three or four years, you know, I've noticed the uprising of more of that. And then, you know, of course, some of the followers of the project reaching out to that person and becoming pretty nasty about it. <laughs> but it really, <laughs> but it, what makes it hurt more is Tori shares almost everything he does to a fault. Yeah. He shares everything he does. That's he, cool. If you call him, he'll stop whatever he's doing and say, oh, yeah, buddy, let me help you with that. So when you steal from somebody like that. Yeah that's where I have an issue. When someone who, if you would just called and asked, he would have helped you just come up with your own way. Like come up with your own way to twist it. Yeah. Bearing made knives is my favorite knife maker that has ever been around. And they make their knives based off a gentleman called Skagel, William Skagel. He was the first to come up with that style of knife. Some of my knives, my Arctic camper resembles a little bit of Skagel, but I found my own way to make it my knife. So it's not a Skagel, but it picks up parts of it. Mm. And I paid homage, especially in my early days. A lot of my knives looked like theirs. And I made sure that I tagged them, shared their stuff, whole nine yards, because I never wanted them to see what I was doing as being disrespectful. That's awesome. And then as I became a better knife maker, I started finding my own way because you have to learn how the steel moves you have to understand a lot to find your own style so in the beginning a lot of people look like a lot of people because they haven't found their way yet right just be respectful and don't 
steal their shit, especially if it's someone who wants to help the community. That's awesome. What, what's your what's been your coolest project so far that you've really the bone dagger, the bone dagger, the yeah. bone dagger, and I just finished that. The bone dagger is by far my favorite thing. One, it's my first time doing a dagger. Two, first time using human bone. <laughs> um, but before that, it was that collaboration piece that we did with Black Rifle, um, because. I, the whole thought pattern behind that was I'm blessed with a very loyal following and I'm blessed with the relationship with Black Rifle. So I found Tori Gunstone. Yeah. And then uh, another gentleman who's amazing, Imperial Leatherwork, became friends with them. And I said, hey guys, you want to do a collaboration? I believe you two need way more publicity than you're getting. I don't. And Tori had just become a full-time knife maker, which is terrifying. When oh, you yeah. quit your job and say, I make something cool enough that I can make a living out of it. So he had just made that move. Gunstone, or I'm sorry, uh, Imperial Leatherwork is one of the greatest leather toolers I've ever seen. And I was like, let me use my platform. Let's do a Black Rifle collaboration. I'll forge the blade. Gunstone, you do the handles and some file work on the knife. And then Imperial will do all the leather. And then we're going to send it off to Josh, who now works for Black Rifle, um, Josh, and he's going to photograph it. And then whatever it makes, I'm not going to take any money on that. I'll split it between you three. I just want to do this to have fun and get you out there. And they were really, really awesome about that. And they're like, holy shit, dude, this is such a cool idea. So we did it. And we, gun to my head, I thought that knife might do $1,100. And yeah. it raised, it brought up over $6,000 wow. um, in an auction. And we were losing our minds about it. So story gets even better. Knife's going great. Auction's going wild. And then in the last 30 seconds of that auction, there were three bidders that just kept jacking it up. And in the last 30 seconds, it jumped a few thousand dollars. Wow. Because I didn't put sniper rules on the, on the auction because I didn't think I needed to. I thought somebody with a little bit of money would be the highest bidder. No one would touch it. So it jumped so crazy. So we were stressed because we didn't even know who really won. So it came down to the second. We hit refresh. This person's name was at the top. And then when we hit refresh again, it was up another $800. Jeez. So it raised, it got almost to $7,000. Wow. So reached out to the three top bidders and we're like, hey, uh, this person won. I'm so sorry. I had no idea it was going to go like this. Reach out to the, fe the girl that won, Miss Aubrey. And I was like, hey, uh, I need to get a hold of you. And she goes, can we WhatsApp? And I was like, great, I just got scammed. And she goes, I'm in Afghanistan. And I wow. was like, what? So she's hours and hours ahead of us. That's crazy. Reach out to her, and she's like, oh, my God. And I go, okay, not to be disrespectful, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. And she goes, I've been saving it. I wanted to support a veteran-owned business, and I wanted to support you. Jeez. So now I'm emotional. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm so glad you won. Told the other gentleman, one who is a – very well-known bulldog breeder. And then another gentleman who, to this day, I don't know his name. He goes by a Bruce Wayne on Instagram, okay. which is even funnier. <laughs> um, and he's a, a franchisee for Black Rifle. So I reached out to them. I was like, sorry, gentlemen, I'm, I don't really know how to do this, but you didn't win. And they were cool about it. And I luckily had her story. And they're like, that's rad. So tell her she deposits the money. And then I share her story on Instagram. Like, this is a female Marine stationed on an army base in Afghanistan. The story's so rad. I'm so happy she won the knife. Bruce Wayne shoots me a message and goes, fuck that. 
give her money back. I'm paying for the knife. She still wins. Wow. But there's no way I'm letting an active duty Marine wow. pay this much money. So now so I'm like losing my mind. Like I'm crying <laughs> like a baby. I call her and I'm like, I'm going to start sit, crying right I now. Just, I was like, I just sent your money back. He's paying for it. So now she's crying and she still donated the money to another veteran organization. So all of this happened and something that I was trying to do just to promote these guys mm -hmm. turned into something so much more. And then all these other people jumped on board. We donated extra knives and it turned into one of the coolest experiences of my life because of the community that has gathered around, I'll say us, yeah. what we're doing, what the Burt Sorensons are doing, what Black Rifle's doing, what you guys are doing. There's a shift in the mentality of veterans in the last few months of, I'm sorry, a few years of, it's not just about me. And there's yeah. plenty of people who still believe that way, but there are more and more and more of us who are like, instead of going against each other, Let's support each other. Let's create a brotherhood where you can hug each other, where you can cry, where you can say, I fucking love you, dude. I tell everybody I love them. I give hugs. First thing I do when I saw you, give you a hug. Mm -hmm. Like, There's something to that where you can still be a badass, but you can also care. And you can care about your community. You can care about the people around you. You can show a bit of a sensitive side. Yeah. And I didn't know that part of me existed until I had my little girls. Mm -hmm. And they brought back a human side of me. And then that, that soul searching during 2020 just turned it to another level. And I, I left a lot of toxic friends and I left a toxic city and I left a lifestyle that I gained nothing from. And I learned that my time is everything and who I give my time to is the most important thing on earth. And when I can hang out with some buddies and then walk away like I will today when you guys leave, I'm going to be on a fucking high. Yeah. I'm going to feel amazing because of the true conversation we had, the brotherhood, the supporting, hopefully this helping some people. Mm -hmm. There's there's meat and potatoes to that. Oh, yeah. And being a part of that, and this is just the beginning. Yeah. Like, we're just getting started. Yeah. Like, I'm 33 years old. I just figured out what kind of man I want to be two years ago. Yeah. And it's an unbelievable feeling, and it's an even cooler feeling when you have people surrounded surrounding you that say, I'm fucking proud of you, yeah. instead of, must be nice. It's the, <laughs> it's the I'm yeah. proud of you, brother. Push harder. Yeah. You got this. Like, you did $10,000 on that auction? Fuck yeah. Like, mm -hmm. we, hell yeah, let's do another one. Like, What's really cool is when you see the people that are succeeding at the highest levels, you know, the Evans and, and guys like that, they're the really successful guys are never bringing other people down. They're lifting other people up because they don't have that insecurity. Evan doesn't have to be insecure about anything within this work. He's developed something truly unique and original. You're not that way in your work. That's what tells me you're going to be successful. Not only the production style, the hard work ethic, everything that first drew me to you within your work has now become an amalgamation of all that, and you're tied to Black Rifle. But you have the success model that you've grown, and it's all come out of a place of kindness. And that's huge. Like, guess what? If you show empathy, you're actually more of a badass because of all the things that you've done already and then showcasing that side, that's who you are. And that's the purpose you live with. How do you carry that forward 
in your work and i'm sure there are moments of you know of of jealousy where you know you see somebody do something you get that internal ego feeling sure. of like oh man now you know i wish that was mine or whatever how do you push forward and get out of that and how do you push forward in kindness for me it's remembering how i got here yeah i will never forget the people that stood the bakers the jareds the people that were there for me before i was anything evan didn't have to do what he did i was nothing before that that's what gets me back is if they didn't take a risk on me and they didn't show me that I wouldn't be where I'm at. So when I get put in that position, that's what I think about. Mm. I think about what would they have done? And I am fuck man. I'm not perfect. It annoys me so much when everyone's like, you're so positive. I'm not positive. I just know how to not let shit get. Me <laughs> I down. think I said it. <laughs> it's like, I just know how Shut to not, up, <laughs> I just know how to not let things bury me. Yeah. I can just figure it out and get up. Like, it's okay. When so much crap has happened to you, you just have to realize, all right, what's going to come of this. Yeah. But when I have those moments of jealousy or they have this or they have that, I remember how, freaking blessed I am to be in the position I am the people that took a risk on me when they didn't need to when they didn't need the credit when they didn't the people who are like hey you should meet this person and then they ghost they just disappear because they don't want that credit they don't need everyone to know well if it wasn't for me this wouldn't be possible yeah they did it out of the kindness of their heart because they want to see people succeed that's really cool that is what makes me push every single day because so many people have taken a risk on me to give me this shop. Yeah. Like I worked out of my garage months ago and now I have a shop that guys would give their left nut for. So instead of me saying, well, now I have the space, I'm going to make all the money and fuck everyone else. Mm-hmm. How do I turn this into a teaching space? How do I host hammer-ins? How do I promote my brothers who ancestors who don't have a platform or an outlet and people don't even know they exist what can i do to give back because if i do that hopefully they'll have the same mentality that i have with evan and matt and jared and everyone here and the countless other people that have helped me it's not just black rifle it's bert it's flag nor fail robin daniel and bailey it's all these people that were an example and led by example essentially every single banner on my wall are companies and business owners that I look up to that remind me every day they're still working, they're still pushing, they're still giving back, helping others. That's what keeps me humble. Yeah. And that's what makes me want to, to my own fault, almost do too much. Because it's <laughs> like, yes, 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 yes. I want to do this. I want to be a part of it. I want to help. But sadly, it is just me. And we're hoping to expand here in the next few months. But it's a rad thing to say that I'm so exhausted and I'm overworked because I'm involved in so many amazing events, organizations, nonprofits. It's a really cool problem to have. Yeah. And I hope it never goes away. And I hope that I hope when people look back at Grizzly Forge and who I am, of course, there's going to be people that if, if, if no one could say shit about you, I don't trust you. I've made my yeah. mistakes. It's how you come back well, from those too. mistakes and how you eat, eat your words or eat that ego. I essentially don't have an ego anymore. And the second that I lost that and gave it up and made it, it's not a dick swinging competition. It's not same with military. It's not about when someone comes up to me and the first words out of their mouth are who are you with? 
I'm already out of that conversation yeah. because I know it's a dick. It's a dick conversation. It's just oh, I'm better than you. I did this. Who you like? They don't care about who that person is. Yeah, and it's it's hard to be around folks like that too because you're also like living in the past, right? There's yeah. that. You know, we, I, we've been talking about it a lot. I've been talking about it a lot with my president on the road, but there, are, it happens quite a bit where guys get stuck in that vicious cycle of like that past life was the most successful thing that I've done. And so I'm going to carry that forward. I'm going to tell everybody my story. Not that your story doesn't have worth. It's incredible. That was part of what you did, but that is not who you are. I don't want to leave a legacy before I'm dead. Yeah. I don't want to do something 10 years ago and that's all people know me for because then what's the rest of my life? Right. Like I want to be leaving a legacy till the day I die. And then once I die, that whole life is a whole, like, I don't want people to be able to sum me up in one quick conversation. He was this guy. He was on teams. He was in goal. Like, I don't want one thing to define me. I want every single day to be, wait, what? You did what? Yeah. Like, I just want it to continue. I saw you uh, this last, this past weekend, Total total Archery Challenge. I wasn't there. Uh, It looked awesome. It It looked like a great time. (laughs) You just got into archery. I mean, and you just started because you wanted to get good with these guys. You wanted to be able to go out and, you know, swing that bow. Yeah. Do what you did at the highest level. How did you decide? How have you gotten into this and and how much of a learning curve has it been? Pure pressure. <laughs> Everybody here shoots, yeah. and we're very blessed to have an unbelievable range on the property. I mean, we can shoot up to over 120 yards um, cool. right here at Black Rifle. So everybody shoots all the time. Like, there are guys shooting when I get here. There are guys shooting at lunch break. There are guys shooting in the evenings. And everybody always told me the focus that comes with archery I would love. Yeah. I avoided it for a long time because I didn't have the time. Blacksmithing was my escape. And now it's work. Still love it. It's, I'm very blessed to do what I love, but it's work. Yeah. I needed something that I could just go outside and take a break. That's what it used to be. I'd eat dinner with the family. Everyone's kind of watching TV. I'd go and fiddle in the shop, work on a knife. Now it's archery. So we're very lucky to have the Isaacs, uh, Isaac Sr. and Isaac Jr. here at Black Rifle. They're our Bowtex. We have a full bow shop. And uh, they were just wouldn't leave me alone. When are you going to shoot? When are you going to shoot? You got to shoot. You got to shoot. And I was like, fine. Let's do it. Like, total archery's coming up. Everybody's going to be doing this. I live out west now. Everybody shoots. Yeah. And I was like, now is the time. So went and shot a bunch of bows with them, found uh, the bow I love and fit me perfectly, and, uh, fuck, just started shooting. And I'll tell you what, the first time I pulled back, I was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Like, this is everything went away again, and it was that focus. And then... Thank God there's someone like John Dudley out there, and he made these videos on YouTube. It's like the intro to archery, part one through three, and starts at the basics all the way to release, your steps, all of that. Man, I watched that whole set like three straight times in a week and a half because I started shooting two weeks before total archery happened. Oh, wow. So I had a lot to learn. But again, something I learned being a sniper I would go do like DDM classes with guys who came straight out of basic. Like I've been to some of the highest levels of shooting and I would still go do those little bitty ones that no, it was like, we don't need to do that because you never knew what you were going to learn, who was going to be there. I might take one thing away from the instructor that I'd never heard before. So swallowing that ego and just being like, I'm here to learn. 
you walk into anything, same with females. I will teach a female how to shoot over a male any day of the week mm. because a lot of times they walk into it way more patient, yeah. zero ego, right. and a lot of times never shot anything before. So they're eager to learn and they'll do exactly what you tell them. Mm. Unlike some dude who's like, well, I, I grew up hunting with my dad. This is how we always did it. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but the way you always did it is wrong. So just listen to me and we'll change it and you'll get better. Yeah. So I got into archery with that mindset of watching these videos and I'm like, okay, I'll do exactly what he tells me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not some like amazing, talented human. I just follow instructions really well. Yeah. So I was very blessed to pick up archery really, really fast. Mm. And even at TAC, like we, at the end, we did the adapted athlete shoot. So Black Rifle puts on, normally it's towards the end, but this year it was the first shoot. But Black Rifle puts on a uh, total archery adapted athlete shoot where we bring veterans in who missing arms, legs, been blown up. Like you name it, they're there. And built a course that is wheelchair accessible. We have these huge tanks they ride on, even to the point of carrying dudes on your back. Like it's a community and a brotherhood, which nobody will understand. And it's nothing but support. So I got to shoot that with all the guys. And at the end, there is a, a challenging shot that everybody gets to send one arrow down and shoot. And for this one, it was a very high elevated shot, 65 yards on a coyote. And the closest arrow to the little sticker was on, you get to build a rifle of your choice, nice. which is super sick. I was lucky enough to win that. Oh, wow. And <laughs> and and That's even cool. doing it, the gentleman I, I, I beat, Trainwreck, he's a double amputee. And that's the gentleman I beat. He was second place. Jeez. And I felt really guilty for winning it. And the only reason I shot in it is Dudley and Bert and all the bigger guys that I've been talking shit to all day, they shot in it. And I was like, I'm shooting it too. Because I never thought I'd win. Yeah. And then when I did, one of the most humbling moments is I went to Trainwreck and I was like, hey, brother, like, oh, you can have the rifle. Like, I first went to Evan and was like, I think I accidentally just won. And he's like, fuck you, like, good job, like, super supportive. And he's, I was like, I'll give it back. Like, was I allowed to shoot? He's like, hell no, you don't work for Black Rifle. You're good to go. So first off, the support from him. And I was like, that's cool. Then I went to Trainwreck and I was like, hey, sir, you can have the rifle. Like, I'm, I didn't mean to. And he got irritated and was like i don't need a fucking handout fuck you mm. like i got this like you yeah. beat me fair and square and he was like congratulations you've only been shooting two weeks that's what it's all about and it meant so much to me just to hear that kind of reaction and that support and i was like cool so now i'm making him a knife and i was like well if you're not going to take this from me then i'm building you the sickest knife ever and then he got emotional he and i had a really cool heart to heart but it was a moment that never would have happened yeah. if it wasn't for this community and all this. And now he and I talk a good bit and I'm making him a super rad knife for second That's place. Awesome. And we've built a friendship based on that. But yeah, archery, it's got me. Yeah. Like it's, and I'm donating, Grizzly Forge has donated a knife for every single one to raise money for the BRCC fund, which is a nonprofit that uh, Black Rifle started this year. So a lot of people have donated a lot of stuff to go up for auction. And then all those funds are going straight to the BRCC fund. So we're raffling one of my knives off, which is a custom build for each tack. So like the month of July, I've got a tack every weekend because I'll be doing Colorado, Montana, and then both Utah's. Wow. And it's just another really sick community of us and being in the outdoors and being outside and, 
fuck man, I'm addicted. (laughs) It's so so much fun, but no, again, just all the guys here pushing it and you know, they all do it. And it's just another way to be outside and have those good conversations and, and do something really sick. That's incredible. You know, another thing I want to talk about, I saw you at, obviously we saw each other at winter strong. Yep. How cool is that? You know, you're in that experience. You're surrounded by those guys. Some of the other incredible Josh Smith and some other incredible knife makers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Neil wasn't there, unfortunately. I know. Love seeing Neil and uh, he's Tommy such an Kura. unbelievable human too. Oh yeah, and his story. Woo, that summer strong. He brought the house down. Yeah, I actually sent him a picture, and it was really cool experience. Because um, I'm photographing. I was photographing a project, and I had just photographed him kind of in the background doing his own thing. And he is such an artist, man. That like he. He's another. Level. I was like, the guy's a Sornex. I was like, oh, they, he's like, I need a photo. And I was like, oh, the, the Sornex media team's been all around. Uh, and he's like, and they'll drop you something. He goes, no, I, I want your photo. I saw where you were standing. I saw how into it you got. I saw you where you were at. I want that photo. And I was like, okay. So I brought up my computer and like edited it real quick, <laughs> sent it over to him, and he like posted it right away. I was like super thankful. And I was like, that humility is pretty incredible coming out of a place where he's been, what he's doing now. I mean, his work is incredible. But you're, I, I met you at Winter Strong for mm-hmm. the first time. And I see you, you know, you're, you're, you're forging something with Kyle Carpenter, a good friend of ours, Medal of Honor recipient. How cool is that and that experience of the network that you've come into, the people you've met, and then you're forging with a Medal of Honor recipient. Yeah. You'll forever remember that. Yeah, well, and Kyle and I have a history together. Oh, really? So, yeah, so... Kyle and I go back a good bit. I met him in Atlanta almost six years ago, six, okay. seven years ago. And we had an unbelievable conversation. He was leaving a Braves game and I was working out on a patio at one of the bars and I saw him walking and I was like, I know who that is. Yeah. So we had met two or three times, just random encounters. And then when he came to Winter Strong, the first, like he parked his car and I was walking towards the Tomahawk area. And the first person I saw, like the first person he saw was me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy. So it's just wild how small the world is. Yeah. But yeah, getting to share something like that. He forged a bottle opener with me. Um, uh, I don't even know if I want to say this, but he actually broke my finger. Um, <laughs> if you take and rub your finger right here, yeah, yeah. he, uh, he oh, yeah. has a hard time broken. gripping a hammer. Yeah. And we were drifting a bottle opener and he drilled my finger like two or three times. And I thought I was good because the adrenaline of like everyone's around, forges are roaring. Yeah. Like it was such a powerful moment. Yeah, and I was he... like, ow. And then like the next morning, my finger is like double the size. <laughs> I didn't even tell him because I didn't want him to feel bad. That's but a cool story, though. Know, Medal of Honor recipient broke my finger. Yeah, <laughs> I have a bone spur now that I'm. They docs want to do a surgery on it, but it's yeah. not affecting anything and it yeah. doesn't hurt. So I just am ignoring it. And it's kind of cool. Text him right after. Don't this. do it. I feel so bad. <laughs> but that and and not just getting to forge with him, yeah. but getting to forge next to Jason Knight and Josh Smith. Yeah, like, those two dudes of are the rad. greatest bladesmiths alive in my book. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. Like, it's I didn't so even wild. know. I'm, I'm not in this world, obviously. I hadn't really known about Jason Knight because I, n- I never really got into Fortune Fire. But mm-hmm. then everybody was telling me. And we had this at Summerstrong. We were at dinner with him and Neil. And the humility of these two dudes and the conversations we were having. I was like, they're, yes, these guys are great artisans. But there's a reason they're so successful. Yeah. Their humility is incredible. It's, and it's something that's overly terrifying. Especially yeah. when you're talking to them. And they're like, oh, no, man, you really got the best stuff. Like. 
yeah, you're way better than me. And I'm like, oh my God, stop. Like, you can be a little cocky. Like, <laughs> you're super awesome. And that was, I told Bert, when Bert told me he was on the list, when he asked me to come up and forge, I was like, what? I was so nervous because yeah. I never got to meet Jason or Josh. Mm -hmm. And then within five minutes of talking, we were best friends. That's cool. And all of that goes out the window of like how good you are. And it's all about just having fun. Yeah. And those are the guys that you want to surround yourself with. So what's the goal moving forward with this? What do you really, what do you like if, you know, you to can not look get out. much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I'm, I don't, I think you're, I think you're screwed on that one, buddy. Well, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of brilliant businessmen yeah. who want to see the best out of me but it's we can hard. have you in 50 states bro yeah no for real i think that was one of the first things evan said is like we could turn this into the greatest knife company ever <laughs> i don't want to yeah i'm so blessed to be able to make the money i'm making now i never thought i'd make more than sixty thousand a year like legitimately and yeah. not that i don't have goals i'm just a realist yeah. and it's like i know my skill sets i know what i can do and i'm happy with this i just want to be happy right. i want to be a good father i want to be a good husband and i want to help as many people as i can honestly like that's just who i am so i'm in the best place i've ever been in my life mm. never love my wife more than i do at this exact second i love my daughters like being a father is the greatest thing that ever happened to me and i get to make knives and hang out with amazing people like you daily <laughs> how much better could life be so moving on it's more or less of how can I give back more? So what we're doing with the shop right now is we're getting it prepped to bring in a few more grinders, more anvils. I want to start hosting hammer-ins here. I want to start bringing veterans in. I want to create a workspace that other people who are interested, I'm blessed financially now to buy, be able to buy more equipment, more anvils. It's expensive. People don't even realize how much an anvil is. Like yeah. this little anvil we have on the desk right now, I just got this. Um, this is an Arm and Hammer, uh, Arm and Hammer anvil from the early 1900s, and I spent over a thousand dollars on this. Wow! And it's a hundred and two pound anvil, and and that's just how much they are. One thanks to Forge and Fire, and two everything's just expensive. So yeah. you're paying close to $7 a pound right now for an anvil. The one behind you that I forge on, that's a hay button anvil. And that one's 242 pounds. And I spent, I think $1,600 when I first bought it Jeez. three years ago. And then your grinder is a few hundred or your grinder is about 1500 attachments and everything around two grand. Like it adds up yeah. a while. So I've been slowly building this shop for the last few years, I started buying stuff for my shop a year before I even started blacksmithing. Wow. Just because I knew I needed to start collecting things for a shop. Yeah. So my goal is to create a space like my mentors did and create a space where I can bring guys in that if they want to, like Trevor Thompson, for instance. Trevor is a guy out here at Black Rifle. A lot of people know who he is. Um, super rad dude, travels all over the place, but he has got to go forge with Josh Smith and he's got to learn a lot in this space. I want to create a space where he can come in and say, hey bro, I'm a forge for a while. He can practice what he's learned from these other amazing blacksmiths. Hey, maybe I'll pick up something from it. But I want a place where everybody can just be in here working. Yeah. And we can all feed off each other. I can host people. And then when it comes to the veteran side of things, I want to be able to teach. Yeah. And for me, that's where I'm going. Um, I'm hoping to fly out my mentor here in the next month or so. And he's literally going to go over 
what he does in his scheduling for how he teaches classes. Mm -hmm. So he'll be able to teach me how to teach because I don't know how to do that. I don't even really know what I do. I just kind of do it. Yeah. And I need to learn how to teach how I make a knife. Yeah. So once I kind of learn that, that's my next big goal. And then bringing on a couple apprentices and maybe one or two employees, that way I can still pump out knives without losing my touch. Yeah. Because I have no want to become some massive rich knife company that just pumps out a bunch of knives. Right now, the people who are patient, I have people that waited over a year for a knife. And those are the people I want to get my knives to. The people that appreciate it, love it, know their little flaws, little the bevel shifts a little bit to the left. Like they can look at their knife and know it was handmade. I don't want to lose that. Yeah. I'll bring somebody in to help with the Kydex or help sand handles. But I always want to be the person that does the most behind it. Mm. And if I can get somebody to come in to help with that lighter work, that would be huge to free me up to do more of the teaching and more of the stuff that I have a vision for in the next few years. And then also I want to highlight more knife makers. Mm. I want to start storytelling and traveling to guys forges and putting them on the map, getting to learn from them and continue building this community that me, Josh, Jason, half face, like gunstone, like this small little group that we have right now, I want to add another 50, 60 guys to that. Yeah. To where you won't be able to stop us. And if you're an asshole, you're never going to survive because the people who are real, they're the ones that are going to survive and the ones that are going to be successful because we're all supporting each other. And it's going to weed out the ones that are just here to steal or use your stuff or ride your coattails. And you're going to build a real community. And I think... I think more people are starting to pick up on authenticity yeah. and people are kind of tired of the bullshit you see on social media. I hate social media with every bone in my body. I only <laughs> have an Instagram. I don't have anything else. And people keep telling me to start a personal one. I don't even want to do that because now that means I have two sets of DMs and I can't even get through my normal ones. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, no. So like I don't want anything to do with that. So with yeah. my one, positivity, honesty, showing the good times with the bad times, not just the perfect knife, but the one I warped 10 times and had to throw away, or when I sliced my finger open on my grinder because I was an idiot and doing it when I shouldn't have been. Like, sharing all of it. Yeah. Because that honesty is what people want right now. And the more people that stop trying to be a cool guy and stop worrying about themselves, you'll find get so much more successful. Gunstone, since that collaboration, and this isn't even on me, He's sold out every single time. Like wow. his knives sell as fast as mine. Wow. And people are seeing that authenticity through him, all the people he's helping, all the other knife makers he's supporting. He's on the exact same track I'm on, which is why I wanted to do that collaboration because it made sense. And his brain is doing the same thing. And people see that and they support that. And the more people that you can get under that mindset, world's going to be a better place. Politicians aren't doing it. Nobody else is doing it. So it's up to us. And hopefully that'll catch and we can make it a little bit better than it is right now. Yeah. And we should be in the leadership space. 
We worked hard to get to where we are. We were willing to put our name on that dotted line. I'm not speaking for myself, but mm-hmm. I'm speaking for some incredible humans in this community uh, that signed their name on the dotted line that formed the blood wall that protects this country. Those pe- are the people that I want to be listening to going into the next generations. Just flat out. No. So that can be in the business space. That can be in pol- politics. That can be in every space. And I believe that uh, just like the World War II model, those guys led the structure of this country. And it was a powerful thing. And we can be that. I really believe it. A hundred percent. And you don't have to have a crazy huge platform. It could literally be something is opening the door for someone. Yep. Or seeing someone you know on the side of the road and stopping to help out. Yep. Or anything like that. It doesn't take a lot. But so many people are waiting for somebody else to do it. Right. The government's going to help us. They're going to give us the money. They're going to tell us what to do. Fuck that. Yeah. We're going to do what we think is right. We're going to do what is right. I don't need somebody to tell me what's right. I know what's right mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it. And if they tell me it's not right, then there's a problem there. Right. So I'm not going to listen and I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be exactly who I say. I yeah. am. Gather your own initiative. Exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. what it's all about. Man. Where can we find you? Uh, so the website's thegrizzlyforge.com, okay. and then my Instagram, grizzlyforge, under, grizzly underscore forge. There's another one out there that can't get deleted. I don't know why. Like, when you Google me, the first one you see is, like, my name and everything, but it's not me. Yeah. Just scroll down to the bottom. I don't know why. That's so annoying. <laughs> but, no, Grizzly Forge and the Grizzly Forge uh, is the website. Lucas has been a privilege having you on man it has truly been an honor to have you you guys out here yeah well we love the space we think it's incredible uh when we're coming out from montana i was like i gotta see this new shop and it's just as rad as i thought it was probably more rad and we got to meet uh edwin yeah oh my gosh dude coffee connoisseur (laughs) all right part two begins now (laughs) (laughs) no exactly (laughs) we're gonna talk about edwin for a while Oh, you can talk about that dude for a long time man crush (laughs) no it's my closest friend here and there's a reason for it (laughs) i'm coming to steal him away <laughs> no, you're gonna do, not, me. do not stab me with one of your <laughs> oh brother i appreciate it man hey it's been awesome thank you so much man uh to all you listening out there don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast uh, it's been a privilege having lucas on and most of all don't forget our legacies are the mission this has been the veterans project podcast with our founder tim k check us out at www.thevetsproject.com on Instagram, at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter, at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, our legacies are the mission.